You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. With me while you're sitting down to John 19, 1 through 16. I'm going to read something for you real quick while you guys are turning there. Um, maybe some of you will be able to, uh, hopefully most of you will be able to tell me what this is by the time I'm done reading it. And forgive me if I stumble, it's a little bit uh, antiquated English, and I'm not super great at reading aloud. <laughs> says this, uh, that when any, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will indicate that government long established should not be charged, changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is the right, it is the duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history to re- of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having indirect object, the establishment of absolute tyranny over these states. Anybody got an answer? What is that? I, I heard somebody say it. Say it a little louder. Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence. If you think about it, we are a nation that is founded on rebellion, right? Like that's, we, we rebelled from Great Britain and it says right here. We celebrate this. It's not just something that just happened 200 years ago. It's something that we remember all the time. Every year, July 4th. I don't know about you guys, but my family celebrated July 4th like it was Christmas. Like we would take a whole week and we would go out to a friend's lake house and we'd eat good foods and we would have discussions about freedom, and we'd go for boat rides and watch fireworks. And side note, if any of you have ever watched fireworks with me, you know how much I enjoy a good fireworks show. Uh, it's almost embarrassing how much I ooh and ah. I mean, I really celebrate this stuff, and I'm sure you guys do too. But that's all celebrating this rebellion, right? It's, if you think about rebellion... You know, all humans have tendencies to rebel, and we're going to talk a ton about that, but I think the the topic of rebellion may be even more um, potent in our American culture because it's what we're founded on. Rebellion is not a bad word to us. It's a good thing. It's promoted in a lot of ways. We're rebels. I think it resonates with us, though, and I think we love that because it's, it's a part of our human condition. So I'm going to read John 19 um, for us, and we can see, hopefully, how we we can recognize our own rebellion in this passage. 
So look with me to John 19. It says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! When Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself a son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the stone on the judgment seat at the place they called the stone pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they said, they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to be crucified. This is God's word. I think we can look at John 19 and see man's quintessential rebellious heart. The problem of man summed up in the words and the characters we see here. I think our problem starts, though, a lot further back than John 19. I think it starts right from the beginning in Genesis 2 and 3. In the fall of man. I don't know about you, but over the years as I've read that passage, that almost seemed, when God, when God had told Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree, for you'll surely die, and that being the only command that he gave to Adam and Eve, I thought this seems kind of just trivial, right? Like just, uh, God was like, okay, I need to come up with a rule. All right, we're drawing a circle around this tree. Don't, don't eat that. And that they're, Disobedience seems somewhat minor, like they just ate some fruit, what's the big deal? But it's a lot more serious than that. Uh, Greg Gilbert, in his book, What is the Gospel, has this awesome quote. It's kind of lengthy. Again, I don't know why I put so much reading in this uh, sermon, but follow along with me on the screen. It says this, Man and woman's rule over creation was not ultimate, however. Their authority was not their own. It was given to them by God. So even as Adam and Eve exercised dominion over the world, they were to remember that they were subject to God and under his rule. He created them, and therefore he had the right to command them. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God planted in the center of the garden, was a stark reminder of that fact. When Adam and Eve looked at the tree and saw its fruit, they were to remember that their authority was limited, that they were creatures, and that they were dependent on God for their very lives. They were only the stewards. He was the king. 
When Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, therefore, they weren't just violating some arbitrary command, don't eat the fruit. They were doing something much sadder and much more serious. They were rejecting God's authority over them and declaring their independence from him. Adam and Eve wanted to be, as the serpents promised them, like God. So both of them seized on what they thought was the opportunity to shed the vice regency and take the crown itself. This is the line that gets me. In all the universe, there was only one thing God had not placed under Adam's feet. God himself. Yet Adam decided this arrangement was not good enough for him. So he rebelled. That's our sin condition. When you're tempted towards sin, it's not like you're tempted towards this arbitrary piece of fruit. It's this inner sin nature that was passed down from Adam crying out in you to say, rebel against God. Take the crown. That's what we see in John 19. John does this really cool thing as he focuses in, as he writes, he focuses on characters. And there's a few different characters that we see as we're going through John, uh, and John 19. I mean, you can remember, we focused on Nicodemus so far, Peter, just in the last few weeks, seeing how they responded to things. Now we're looking at a couple uh, different, different characters, and I want to draw our attention to the crowd and to these soldiers beating Jesus. There are a couple characters here. There's more characters in this passage, and we'll get to them too. But initially, I want to draw our attention to those two to see how we can see the essence of of our human rebellion in John 19. Uh, so first we see these, these soldiers, they're beating and mocking Jesus. What are they doing? They're punching him, they're flogging him, they say, Hail, King of the Jews! They put a crown on his head and a robe on his back. You know, what are they mocking him for, right? It's clear. They're mocking him because he's claimed to be the King of the Jews. And if you remember, just like a week earlier... When what we would celebrate is Palm Sunday, Jesus had come riding in, and all of Jerusalem had come out with these leaves, and they had been saying, what? Hosanna, Hosanna! So they're calling him a king. And so now, that's where they're getting this claim from. These Roman guards are like, you think you're a king? Look at you. I'm going to dress you up like my little doll, and I'm going to beat you. Hail, king of the Jews! And they're showing... In doing that, they're showing their power over Jesus and his invalidity to his claims of being king. And we do the same thing. Humans. How often do you hear those sort of threats launched against, or those sort of claims launched against Jesus? Does he really say that? That's so antiquated. You believe that? You're going to really follow that? I mean, do you really think he means that? Oh, you, you believe that bloody cross religion? I mean, many of you even know the band Gunger. They stopped proclaiming the, the biblical inerrancy because they saw Jesus' atonement. They were like, it wouldn't be like that. That's that same rebellious attitude that we have where we think we can, we can stand over Jesus with our authority and say, you really think that's true? Not submitting to Him. That's in humans. That's in you and I. That's the same sin sickness. Not only that, but we've got an, a couple of claims from the crowd that really, I think, potently show 
our rebellion against God. Uh, this is ac- not actually in the passage that we read, but uh, in what Mark read last week, uh, they, they cry out for Barabbas. You remember that? So there's this robber named Barabbas, and the, there's this custom that the Jews had that they would release one of the prisoners who was uh, set up to be crucified. So they give him an option, Jesus or Barabbas. And it says, now Barabbas was a robber. But I'm thinking that has to be, that has to be lightly phrased. Because, like, Barabbas is rightfully on trial. And Pilate put, picks out the sickest dude in the group and says, all right, they're surely going to choose Jesus over Barabbas. So he's the worst of the worst standing up there. When it says he's a robber, we can assume he's committed gross and offensive things against these people who are standing in the crowd. That they would know this is Barabbas. We're definitely choosing Barabbas to crucify him. But when they have the choice between Jesus, king of the Jews, and Barabbas, this man who has violated their town in so many ways that he's about to be crucified, what do they cry out? Give us Barabbas! You might think, wow, man, that's crazy. But in our sin, we do the same thing. Where we look at, man, I could submit to Jesus, and I could follow Him, transform life, freedom from sin, paid for my sin, or I could have my sin. I could have Barabbas, the full sickness of my sin, all the consequences of it, all the problems and the tension and the turmoil, the suffering that comes from my own sin. You know what? I'd rather not give up my independence. I'd rather not give up my my crown in my life. I'll take my sin. Give me Barabbas. Or their cry against Caesar. That's mind-blowing. When or Toward Caesar, against Jesus. He says, Shall I crucify your king? Pilate says this in verse 15. And they answer him, We have no king but Caesar. That is wild because... The Messiah they're looking for, they're looking to free, that, that Messiah will come, they think, to free them from Caesar. The, and their Messiah is standing right in front of them, and they say, yeah, we've got no king but Caesar. That's crazy. That they would look at, they've got the solution right there, their king, and they say, give us Caesar. But we do the same thing too. I just think about this in terms of death, right? How, what do we do in our lives to try to prevent or stop death? How much has been put into medical technology? How much do you spend on a yearly basis to try to keep yourself alive and healthy? Tons. I mean, safety, health, you've got security, you've got all these things we invest in to try to prevent death. But when we preach to the world, hey, we got the solution to death here. We got Jesus. He he will overthrow your biggest problem. Death. He's beaten it. They're like, actually give us Caesar. Give us death. I'd rather do that than follow Jesus. That rebellion is within us. See, that's easy to think about when we think about maybe yourself before you were saved or other people out in the world, but That same rebellion is our sin nature that drives us every time you have the choice to follow God or to sin. Every time you put those two things on the scales and begin to weigh, what should I do? 
how should I respond? And every time you choose sin, which we all do, that's your sin nature too kicking in, saying, I'll take this sin. That's our problem. That's within us. And it's how we can rightfully sing that hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Miss Lionel, excuse me. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought new life. I know that it is finished. We have got to see ourselves. Like in the right in the right lenses, you and I on our own are rebels against God. And that is our biggest problem. So we look deeply into our own condition as men and women, as rebels, and we see the sickness of our rebellion. But the sickness actually gets magnified as we look at the person who we rebel against. Jesus as the King of Kings. It's all over this passage. You, you have to be reading this passage with shades over your eyes in order to miss it. They're, calling, they're saying, Hail King the Jews. They put a crown on his head and a purple robe on his shoulders. There's all this discussion about authority. Clearly, John wants to draw attention that there was tension over Jesus being king. I think sometimes... When we, when we talk about titles for Jesus, we throw out, you know, titles like Prince of Peace, Everlasting uh, God, Mighty Counselor, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and these all kind of just get grouped get together as like new, like names for Jesus. But there's significance in all of those titles, and the significance of the King of Kings I think is really interesting because we usually think of it like, yeah, he's, a, he's my king. But what is a king? Where did the, king, the, the office of king come from? Where, how was that invented? You know, that's a human office. Did you know that men, men invi- invented kings? They, it was a man to rule other, over other men. And, and we see in 1 Samuel 8 that the Israelites were kind of late to the party for having a king. This is when the, the, they, they inaugurated their first king in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9. This is what it says. You can read this up on the screen. It says, Then all the elders of, the, of Israel gathered together, and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And that's right there. That's, our, that's the quintessential problem of our rebellion against God. He was their king. They said, we can't have you as our king. We want a man to be our king. They, they declared their independence from God. And that, so, so when we call Jesus the King of Kings and think of him being the King of the Jews, we have to first understand, yeah, we are not, he's not coming to be naturally on our own, our King. 
He's coming, we are his enemies. We are the rebels against the king. And what is this coming king? Why does the Bible talk about this coming king uh, treating his enemies? I think if you look in Psalm 2, it says that, that Jesus will come, this coming king will come, terrifying his enemies in fury. In Psalm 110, it says that, that the coming king will pile up the corpses. This king is coming in victory over his enemies, and he's taking out his enemies. So you and I, on our own, are rebels against God, standing on the opposite side of the king of kings, who is coming to wipe out his enemies. So you think, man, I just want to switch sides then. And the crazy thing about it is that so many people throughout history have recognized that they're on the wrong side of God and tried to do something about it on their own. And given their best effort, a lot better effort than you and I give. People committing themselves to holiness and sacrifices over and over and over, giving their best efforts to try to make themselves right before God, and not one, no matter how much er how earnestly they pursued it, could make themselves right with God on their own. You are hopelessly a rebel against God. And the King of Kings is going to come, and He is going to conquer His enemies, if that's the end of the story. Ephesians 2 1 through 5 says this. And you were dead and your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan you were following, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So take a moment and soak in that truth. And don't let that grow old that you are a helpless rebel against the coming king of wrath but that same king used his authority and his out of his love to free you and I to raise you and I from the dead to put us on the right side of the trinity in victory so what how should we respond to this truth of John 19? For those of you who are sitting here saying, I think I may still be a rebel against God. I think that I, I don't know that I have followed Christ, that he has raised me from the dead and changed my life. And I don't know if I'm willing to give up my Caesar, my Barabbas yet. This is what happens in Acts 2 when these same people who were crying out against Jesus heard Peter's sermon. This is, this is Peter's sermon. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, have, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that he has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And here's, here's their response. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the, prophet, the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for the, all those who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord the, our God calls to himself. So when you're cut to the heart and you realize, man, I, my voice was in those scoffers. I am part of the rebellious problem and I need to be right before God and I can't do it on my own. We, we can trust in Jesus. Have faith that He has been enough to pay our price, to make us right. And that through the power of the Spirit, we're able to turn our hearts from being enemies of God. Like it says, when it, means, when it says repent, it means you're doing this 180 turn. Like, I am following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working as the son of the disobedience. I'm, I'm like the rest of, uh, of the world, you know, children of wrath. But God, and there's this transformation in your heart of repentance where you go from following that, now you're following Jesus, and you're willing to lay aside your Caesar and your Barabbas and your own crown. You say, I'm following Jesus. He's my king. And that happens by the power of the Spirit because Jesus has allowed it. So if you're cut to the heart, I'd call you to repent. Secondly, though, I want us to look at one interaction. Wow, I'm doing way better on Sunday than I thought I would be. That's awesome. Praise, praise God. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Verse 10 and 11. Let's look there in John 19. It says, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That's kind of like a mic drop moment, isn't it? Like, Pilate's sitting there like, Jesus, answer me. You, do you not know that I'm going to kill you if you don't answer me? And Jesus is like, you have no authority over me unless it's been given from heaven. And, and like, do you imagine the real, the back reel from, from Pilate as he's like, these people are saying he claimed to be the son of God. He's just saying, you only have authority because heaven gave it. Kind of like, boom, you've got no real authority over me. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Our rebel hearts want to connect Jesus and say, like, he's shirking a, authority there. But that's, that's, not what, that's not what's happening. The crazy thing is, is who is Jesus? He's a king of kings, right? And he's talking about no authority has been given to you except for what's from above. Where else does Jesus talk about authority being given? Matthew 28. What does he say? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. He is the center, the locus of all authority. It all comes from him. He's the king of kings, and he gets to decide who has authority. But is he sitting under Pilate? He's saying, I've given you the authority to crucify me. God has given you the authority to crucify me, and because I 
have faith in the Father's plan, I'll trust him now. That's crazy, though. Like, that authority isn't self-seeking. That authority isn't just over people who deserve it. Remember, everyone under Jesus' authority has said, crucify him, give us Barabbas, give us Caesar. That's what they've said. But he's thinking about them still. So we as Christian leaders, whether you're a parent, a husband, a pastor, a deacon, whether you're a boss, whether you're in government, whether you're a police officer, whatever that may be, you are called to use the authority that God has given you for the sake of those He has placed you in authority over. And that means when it means suffering for yourself, it's what God has put you there for. When it means taking wrong responses from the people you're leading, it's what God has put you there for, and not seeking yourself. That's what God's put you there for. You can use your authority in a powerful way, because that's, that's right in the face of what the world is doing today, right? Like, the authority is about me, you obey, I'm the boss, I lay down the rules, you follow my rules. If you don't like it, you're gone. But God has given you authority for a different purpose. He's given you authority so that you can point the world to Christ. And when they see you serving and doing what's best, best for them with your authority, they look at that and they say, wow, what is, what is different about that person? How can they do that? Your authority as a believer is never about holding it over and demanding and um, overpowering, but about showing love to those that you serve as a leader. Here's the flip side of that, though. How many of you have taken a class or a course or heard a seminar about leadership in your life? Raise your hand. It's taught in, it's taught in colleges. We all do it. Everybody's pushed, pushed, pushed to be a leader. But Jesus, here in the, at the climax of time, with all the authority in the world to wield. Remember, he can, when the sea is, is going crazy, he can say, be still, and boom, it goes still. He's got all that authority to flex right now. What does he do? He doesn't flex his authority, but Jesus submits to authority. Submission. That's why I think it's so crazy in our culture how not just in our culture, but as humans, when we talk about submission, man, I, I know there's some groaning hearts out there like, oh, I don't want to submit. I, would, I don't want to do that. I don't want to submit to my government. That's crazy. I don't want to submit to any man in leadership, whether it be in the church or my boss or anyone. I don't want to submit to them. I, I don't want to submit to my parents. Whatever it may be, you, there might be this, this block in your heart that's like, I submission. That's low. That's, that's not cool. That's not powerful. What a waste of my life. Jesus, at the climax of time, submits. That's why we sing around the throne of God in heaven, according to Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's a picture of submission. A lamb being led into the slaughter. That's what we sing around the throne. 
So God wants you to know, those of you, and that's all of you according to Ephesians 5, so we're all submitting in one way or another. When you submit, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Because everybody you submit to, whether you like them or not, they're sinners. And it takes a whole lot of trust in the one who judges justly, the one who gives authority from heaven, the king of kings, to know that he's really the one in control. God wants you to know that submission is a powerful and gracious thing that points people to the love of Jesus. It's not subservient or pointless or useless. But it's really good. I think all of this comes back to our hearts and what we value. I think we can stick out in a really powerful way by saying we trust so heavily in the sovereignty of God that I know He's in control and that no matter how you use your authority, I I know the ultimate authority has a good plan for me. Like it says in Romans 8, and I'll close with this. Uh, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be... Oh, uh, let me just read it. For, um, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He's working all things for our good. And we can trust him in that.